Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Weissman Family Dental in Boulder, Colorado. For over 25 years, Weissman Family Dental has been providing high-quality dentistry. They offer regular checkups, emergency care, and a wide range of specialty services. They also have staff that speak Spanish. If you are looking for a new dentist, find them at WeissmanFamilyDental.com or call them at 303-494-0101 and tell them Audio Information Network of Colorado sent you. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for the January 19th, 2023, Thursday's reading of the Boulder Daily Camera and the Longmont Times Call. My name is Nicola Fordwood. Today, we will be reading the following main articles. From the Daily Camera, Whittier Place Condos, Demolition Begins 15 Months After Fire, written by Annie Mel. Weather, Wednesday's Snow Day, written by Shubaskika Singh. State Education, Public School Enrollment Continues to Decline, written by Jessica Seaman. Lions Area, County Firefighters Battle Blaze, Prevent Its Spread, written by Mitchell Byers and following up with miscellaneous articles. The following main articles from the Longmont Times Call. Ukraine. Strikers, Bradleys, likely in huge U.S. aid package. Written by Matthew Lee and Lolita C. Baldor. Gun violence shooting by six-year-old raises complex cultural questions. Written by Holly Raymer. Trial canceled. Chadois takes plea deal, in case, written by Mitchell Byers. Colorado employers, late changes to schedules could result in fines, written by Seth Clayman. And following up with miscellaneous articles. From the Daily Camera, Whittier Place Condos, Demolition Begins 15 Months After Fire, written by Annie Mel. More than a year after a structure fire destroyed 81 condominiums on Pearl Street, work to tear down and rebuild the homes has only just begun. Demolition of the first two Whittier Place buildings began Friday and is expected to take about six weeks, according to a news release from the Whittier Place Condominium Homeowners Association. The remaining four buildings were recently cleared by the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment which allows the demolition permit process to proceed, the release said. Residents waited several months after the fire before they could return to their damaged homes to gather what was left of belongings. Now, what is left of the condos is finally being torn down after work was delayed due to difficulties with environmental protocols, the release said. Construction to rebuild the condos is expected to be complete in 2025. Since the flames engulfed the condos in October 2021, Boulder Fire Rescue has been unable to determine the exact cause of the fire, but said there was no evidence the fire was set intentionally. Residents in all units were forced to flee the fire, but none were injured. The condominiums were spread across six buildings and were a mix of owner-owned as well as long- and short-term rentals. Most structures partially collapsed in the fire, the city state stated in the release. As work begins to rebuild the condos, former residents are also still working to rebuild their lives. Sasha Barajas is one of those residents. After the fire, she was able to move in with a friend until she found an apartment of her own. And last February, she purchased a condominium with the money she received from renter's insurance after the fire. Unfortunately, retrieving her belongings did not happen as swiftly as finding a new home did, Barajas said this week. After her condominium was deemed safe for conditional entry last March, Barajas and other residents who were given the same clearance were provided with instructions on March 10, 2022, 
to either hire a qualified person to go in and retrieve their belongings, or work with ServPro, a commercial fire and water cleanup and restoration services company hired by the HOA. Barajas hired a contractor and alerted the HOA on March 15th, and followed up again two days later. She was then told her contractor wouldn't be approved before the March 21st deadline. I ended up going through ServPro and ended up spending just under $1,000 and gave them a list, Barajas said. They did obtain some things, but not all of the things I asked for. To go through all of that work of interviewing a contractor and submitting all of the paperwork was really challenging. Although she did have renter's insurance, Baraha said she had already submitted her claim before working with ServPro, so none of what she paid the company was reimbursed. ServPro declined to comment for this story. Elif Kuzu, who also lost her home in the fire, is still frustrated about the situation and how long it took to regain entry to her home, which was one of the few condos eventually deemed structurally safe following assessments completed by Wiss, Janney, Eltzner, Associates, Inc. Last January and March. Kuzu's landlord ultimately covered a $150 fee the HOA required residents to pay to retrieve their belongings. It was very emotional going back in there, she said. It took months to go back in there, and the HOA knew our apartment was safe. Leading up to her return, ServPro assessed her apartment and documented footage that revealed missing personal belongings, Kuzu said. She said her jewelry was taken, along with two bikes on the porch of the second-story condominium and one of her credit cards. None of the items have been since been returned or located. I think that the HOA should have definitely been more prepared and considerate of the tenants and, un- and the owners, and they should have revealed the structural report and let everyone get their stuff, Kuzu said. In the end, they ended up doing that and allowing people to get their stuff, but no one should have to pay anything. That's unethical. You don't make people buy back their stuff. Officials with the Whittier Place Condominium Homeowners Association could not be reached to comment before publication Wednesday, but included information about the process to allow residents to retrieve items and the upcoming rebuild in its news release. Since the catastrophic loss by fire on October 19, 2021, the Whittier Place Condominium Homeowners Association, through its volunteer homeowner board and active membership, has worked diligently with professional advisors and in cooperation with the City of Boulder on personal property retrieval, site security, design and planning, demolition and site deconstruction, the release said. The Whittier Place board members, all of whom lost their own properties in the fire, recognize that removal of buildings affects each resident or owner differently and has impacted the communities and businesses surrounding the property. Weather. Wednesday's Snow Day. Written by Shubasika Singh. Snowfall overnight Tuesday in Boulder County led to Boulder Valley School District, the University of Colorado Boulder, and City of Boulder offices and facilities to announce closures Wednesday. The county saw between four and six inches of snow, with light snowfall continuing throughout Wednesday morning. Snowfall remained consistent with not much change throughout the day, according to the National Weather Service. According to Bruno Rodriguez, a meteorologist for the National Weather Service, snowfall was relatively persistent Wednesday morning. An additional one or two inches of snow were expected throughout Wednesday, Rodriguez added. Boulder saw less snowfall than anticipated, because snow tracked a little further north than expected, according to Rodriguez. BVSD announced Tuesday evening via Twitter that schools would be closed due to weather. All schools in BVSD will be closed tomorrow, January 18, 2023, due to the weather. All before and after school activities are canceled. There will be no remote learning, the tweet read. Many parents felt that it was an early call as Boulder saw less snow than expected. Definitely too soon, not enough snow to justify closing for a working parent, said one Twitter user. 
Another said, BVSD, can you please give some details on why the decision was made last night to close schools? Why not decide in the morning? Would a school start delay have made more sense or no delay at all? Some users also thought BVSD's decision made sense as the forecast was for heavy snowfall and hazardous road conditions. The forecast was for 8 to 12 inches, fast falling and dangerous road conditions. It was a good call with the information available. It's never going to be perfect, the tweet read. Randy Barber, spokesperson for BVSD, said that the district made the decision as early as possible to ensure that families in the area had sufficient time to make accommodations. The Boulder Valley School District takes the decision to close schools very seriously, he said in a statement to the Daily Camera. During every snowstorm, we monitor weather forecasts and road conditions. In this case, meteorologists were warned were warning of a significant snowstorm, and knowing the impact of a closure, we decided to make the decision as soon as possible so that our families would have enough time to make appropriate arrangements, Barbara added. State Education Public school enrollment continues to decline. 3,253 fewer students enrolled in fall 2022 than in previous school year, according to new data. Written by Jessica Seaman. Colorado's public schools continue to lose students last fall, according to new data from the State Department of Education that shows elementaries aren't the only schools bearing the brunt of the enrollment crisis. Middle schools also are teaching fewer children. Overall enrollment in preschool through 12th grade fell by 3,253 students this academic year. And while this drop is small, less than 1%, it represents a multi-year decline that began in 2020. The drop was most noticeable in kindergarten and middle school grades, which fell 3.82% and 2.24% respectively according to the department. It makes sense this drop-off moves up to middle schools, said Kathy Schultz, dean of the School of Ed- Education at the University of Colorado Boulder, adding that, eventually, universities will feel the effects of falling K-12 through enrollment. Statewide, there were 883,264 students enrolled in preschool through 12th grade in October which is down from 886,517 pupils in 2021, according to data released Wednesday by the Department of Education. Public school enrollment fell for the first time in decades in 2020, as Colorado lost almost 30,000 students during the first year of the pandemic. While it rebounded slightly last year, K-12 enrollment dropped by 1,174 students in 2021, when excluding preschoolers. The pandemic temporarily pushed enrollment down, but the primary driver is demographic changes, Schultz said. Declining enrollment, which is occurring across the country, has largely been attributed to falling birth rates and high housing birth rates and high housing costs that are pushing families from districts, including Denver Public Schools. It's not just educators that can't afford to live here, said Rob Gold, president of the Denver Classroom Teachers Association. Homeschool enrollment also dropped during the current academic year, with only 8,674 students counted in October. By comparison, 10,502 children were homeschooled in 2021, according to a news release. The enrollment count released by the state on Wednesday is used to help determine funding for districts. Schools receive less money when there are fewer students. The state's two largest districts, DPS and Jeffco Public Schools, already are reckoning with the financial consequences as both are facing budget deficits, meaning they are spending more money than they are bringing in. Jeffco Public Schools decided it will shut down 16 elementary schools later this year before tackling secondary schools in the near future. DPS has, for now, paused its discussion of school closures, but the district forecasts that if nothing changes, 
it will run a deficit at least through the 2025-26 physical year. DPS lost about 1,000 students, bringing preschool through 12th grade enrollment to 87,864 pupils. Jeffco Public Schools lost more than 1,300 students for a total of 77,078 pupils in preschool through 12th grade. Lyons Area County Firefighters Battle Blaze Prevent It Spread Written by Mitchell Byers Boulder County crews were able to contain a structure fire just east of Lyons on Wednesday morning. The fire was reported just after 8 a.m. Wednesday on Highland Drive, just east of Oot Highway and U.S. 36. According to police radio traffic, the structure was fully engulfed when firefighters arrived. Boulder County Sheriff's Office officials said a barn that had been converted into a workshop was destroyed, while a nearby outbuilding was also damaged. Crews, however, were able to keep the fire from spreading beyond that, and there were no injuries. The cause of the fire is under investigation. Lafayette. City Council Passes Economic Housing Plan. Written by Andrea Grajeda. Lafayette City Council unanimously approved the Economic Development and Housing Strategic Plan during Tuesday's meeting. Council voted 7-0 with implementation of the plan scheduled to begin soon. Principal Planner Phil Kleiser said that the plan includes long-term and short-term goals to create a more resilient and sustainable economy so that people of all backgrounds can live and work in Lafayette. Kleisler said that by analyzing the socioeconomic condition and housing market, city staff and council can move toward helping residents. Director of Economic Development Bridget Keating said that the economic development part of the plan looks at industry sectors, changing markets, and community character. She said that the plan takes a wider approach to development as the economy and residents are so closely intertwined. The people in place are just as important for creating a community that people want to live in and also investing in residents, Keating said. Keating said that the Housing Strategic Plan promotes a diversity of housing to meet all incomes of residents and will ensure that 12% of the housing market is permanently affordable for low, moderate, and middle-income households by 2035. The plan began in January 2022 and implementation plan will begin soon. A small business incentive policy program will be drafted, which will help businesses ask for expansion support. Keating said that a number of housing initiatives will be implemented soon, such as land use, coding updates, regional collaboration, growth management, and affordable housing updates. Council member Stephanie Walton said that the grouping of housing and economic development will benefit Lafayette. Councilmember Nicole Sampson said that housing and business have a mutually beneficial relationship as residents shop at businesses they can afford and businesses open where they know they will have customers. Sampson also said that the preservation does not always mean keeping the exact same thing there. She said that this especially applies to affordable housing as sometimes infrastructure may decrease so the unit may have to be replaced, but the affordable housing is still preserved. You have to give healthy, decent housing to people who are low and moderate income. You cannot give them housing that's crumbling, said Sampson. Mayor J.D. Maggat said that the plan allows the council to complete many action items. He also said that he's excited to see the outcomes of the plan, including having residents who live, work, and play in the city. And across the nation, violence. New Mexico shootings follow two years of election assaults. Written by Christina A. Cassidy, the Associated Press. Two years since the attack on the U.S. Capitol, a series of drive-by shootings targeting Democrats in New Mexico is a violent reminder that the false claims about a stolen election persist in posing a danger to public officials and the country's democratic institutions. While no one was hurt in the Albuquerque attacks, 
This latest outburst of political violence underscores how election denialism has become deeply embedded across much of the country and how it is driving grievance-filled anger over the nation's politics and officeholders. Over the past year, the husband of former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was seriously injured in an attack in his home by an assailant who said he was sick of the lies coming out of Washington, D.C. Election workers were intimidated and harassed, and prosecutors won convictions in a plot to kidnap Michigan's governor. Further sign of the unrelenting threat came this week when authorities arrested a Republican candidate for the New Mexico House who had refused to accept his loss in last fall's election. Police said Solomon Pena hired four people to shoot at the homes of four Democratic lawmakers. I think we are really entering a new era where political rhetoric has gotten so heated and people with mental health issues or extreme conspiratorial viewpoints on the world have resorted to political violence. New Mexico Attorney General Raul Torres, who took office January 1st, said in a recent interview with the Associated Press. He wants the legislature to address political violence, and he said he plans to talk with the Secretary of State's office about ways to shield some information about elected officials or candidates from public disclosure. Torres noted that other countries have become destabilized when extremists use threats and intimidation rather than work through the institutions of government. He said such violence is destabilizing and needs to be dealt with forcefully. It is a threat to the very fabric and foundation of a democratic republic, he said. Lies by former President Donald Trump and his allies about the 2020 presidential election led to the riot of the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, as well as threats and harassment against state and local election officials. The insurrection in Washington also contributed to a drop in confidence in election results among Republicans. Some election deniers ran last year for offices that oversee elections, as well as for governor and attorney general, all losing in battleground states. The turn to violence in New Mexico suggests the lasting impact of the campaign by Trump and his allies to discredit the 2020 race he lost and sow doubt about how elections are run. A large segment of Republicans, 58 percent, still believe Democrat Joe Biden's victory in 2020 was not legitimate, according to an October poll by the Associated Press, NORC Center for Public Affairs Research. Pena, a 39-year-old felon and self-proclaimed MAGA king, faces multiple charges in the Albuquerque area tax on the homes of two state lawmakers and two county officials, including one house where a 10-year-old girl was asleep. Pena had refused to accept his landslide loss in November when he won just 26% of the vote in a state house race in Albuquerque against the longtime Democratic incumbent, Representative Miguel P. Garcia. Pena parroted Trump's rhetoric, claiming without evidence that the House race had been rigged against him. There has been no evidence of fraud or widespread problems in New Mexico's election. Pena was scheduled to make an initial court appearance Wednesday on charges that include multiple counts of shooting at a home, aggravated battery with a deadly weapon, conspiracy and being a felon in possession of a firearm. He spent nine years behind bars after his arrest in April 2007 for stealing electronics and other goods from several retail stores as part of what authorities described as a burglary crew. He was released from prison in March 2016 and had his voting rights restored after completing five years probation in April 2021, correction officials said. The New Mexico Republican Party said in a statement that Pena should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law if he is found guilty. There also was no evidence of widespread fraud or manipulation of voting machines in the 2020 election, and Biden's win was affirmed after exhaustive reviews in the states where Trump disputed his loss. Dozens of judges, including some appointed by Trump, 
rejected lawsuits by Trump and his allies challenging the outcome. And Trump's own attorney general, William Barr, said the fraud claims were bogus. There are no obituaries today in the Daily Camera. And from the Longmont Times call, Ukraine, Strikers, Bradleys, Likely, in Huge U.S. Aid Package, written by Matthew Lee and Lolita C. Baldor, the Associated Press, Washington. The U.S. is finalizing a massive package of military aid for the Ukraine that U.S. officials say is likely to total as much as $2.6 billion. It's expected to include, for the first time, nearly 100 striker combat vehicles and at least 50 Bradley armored vehicles to allow Ukrainian forces to move more quickly and securely on the front lines in the war with Russia, but not the tanks that Ukraine has sought. The officials said the numbers could change as the Biden administration goes through final deliberations on the package. An announcement is expected this week when defense leaders from the U.S., Europe, and other regions gather in Germany to discuss military support for Ukraine. The aid is also expected to include thousands of rounds of ammunition, including rockets for air defense systems. The officials spoke on condition of anonymity because the aid has not yet been made public. The decision to send the strikers, which could be delivered within weeks, comes on the heels of announcements by the British to send Ukraine battle tanks, which have long been sought by Ukrainian leaders. The strikers and Bradleys are armored personnel carriers. Under Secretary of Defense for Policy, Colin Call told reporters Wednesday that a new phase of the war is shaping up as Russia gets more deeply entrenched and that Ukraine will need mechanized infantry to break those lines. The Russians are really digging in. They're digging in. They're digging trenches. They're putting in their dragon's teeth, laying mines. They're really trying to fortify that flot, that forward line of troops, Kahl said. To enable the Ukrainians to break through given Russian defenses, the emphasis has been shifted to enabling them to combine fire and maneuver in a way that will prove to be more effective. Speaking at the World Economic Forum meeting in Davos, Switzerland on Wednesday, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky told political leaders that Western supplies of weapons must outpace Russia's attacks, urging the world to move faster because tragedies are outpacing life, the tyranny is outpacing democracy. The striker can transport a full squad of nine infantry troops and a crew of two. It is equipped with a 30-millimeter gun, a machine gun and or grenade launcher, and can travel up to 60 miles per hour, nearly 100 kilometers per hour. It runs on eight wheels, which makes it more nimble, speedy, and fuel-efficient than the Bradley, which is more heavily armored and carries fewer troops. The first shipment of 50 Bradleys was announced two weeks ago, known as a tank killer because of the anti-tank missile it can fire, the Bradley runs on tracks, making it more useful in muddy terrain than the striker. Ukraine has for months sought to be supplied with heavier tanks, including the U.S. Abrams and the German Leopard II tanks. But Western leaders have been treading carefully. The United Kingdom announced last week that it will send Challenger II tanks to Ukraine, but the U.S. and others have held off. Germany is facing pressure to send the Leopard 2 tanks, and Poland has expressed readiness to provide a company of Leopard tanks. But Polish President Andrzej Duda stressed during his recent visit to the Ukrainian city of Lviv that Poland would only do so as part of a larger international coalition of tank aid to Kiev. The Czech Republic and Poland have provided Soviet-era T-72 tanks to Ukrainian forces, and France has said it would send AMX-10 RC armored combat vehicles to Ukraine, designated light tanks in French. U.S. officials say there is still no movement to send M1 Abrams tanks to Ukraine. Laura Cooper, the Deputy U.S. Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia and Ukraine, said this month 
that Ukrainian troops have become better at maintaining and sustaining complex armored vehicles, and they will get additional training. But, she said, tanks, such as the more complex, gas-guzzling, heavily armored Abrams, would require much more maintenance and other training. The influx of tanks and armored carriers comes as Ukraine faces intense combat in eastern Ukraine, around the city of Bakhmut, and the nearby salting mine town of Solidar. The battles are expected to intensify in the spring. In addition to the Bradleys, the previous U.S. aid package included 100 M113s, armored personnel carriers, and 55 mine-resistant ambush-protected vehicles, or MRAPs. Those types of armored carriers, along with the strikers, will better protect Ukrainian troops who are fighting a brutal campaign against Wagner forces made up in large part of convicts from Russian prisons. The U.S. Army has a large number of strikers available to send. Just last year, the Army announced plans to convert its striker brigade, brigade combat team in Alaska to a more mobile infantry unit better suited for frigid Arctic regions. Gun violence. Shooting by six-year-olds raises complex cultural questions. Written by Holly Raymer, the Associated Press. He was six, in his first grade class in Newport News, Virginia. He pointed a handgun at his teacher, please say, and then he pulled the trigger. And across the nation, people didn't quite know how to react. Even in a country where gun violence is sadly commonplace, the story of a small boy with a gun is reverberating in a big way. There has been finger-pointing, confusion, floundering for answers, mass grappling with deeply uncomfortable feelings, and questions. How could something like this possibly happen? Where in the national consciousness do we put it? It is almost impossible to wrap our minds around the fact that a six-year-old first grader brought a loaded handgun to school and shot a teacher Mayor, Mayor Philip Jones said that day, January 6. However, this is exactly what our community is grappling with today. It's not just his community, though, and it wasn't just that day. This is a country full of people who know exactly what they think about everything and say so. Yet many are throwing their hands up at this. In a land awash in hot takes, it's a head-scratcher and a heart-scratcher even. I never thought elementary students being the shooter was a possibility we would ever see, says Kendra Newton, a first-grade teacher in Florida. That may be because it sits outside what people are accustomed to. Jennifer Tallarico, a psychology professor at Lafayette College in eastern Pennsylvania, believes the case hits differently in part because it violates society's expectation for both school shootings, of which there were two others elsewhere in the country that day, and childhood itself. Sadly, we have schemas, we have rubrics, we have archetypes of school shootings in this country. We have a sort of script for these things, said Tallarico, who has studied how people remember indirectly experienced events. Using the phrase school shooting as a shorthand leads us to develop that story in our heads, and when the facts of the case are so different, that is what is surprising. Americans typically view childhood as an encapsulation of the best of our society and values, Tallarico says. Innocence, fun, joy, love. Anything that challenges that deep-seated view unearths complicated questions about the culture and community in which a child is being raised, whether it be local culture and community or the entire nation. That's some hard self-reflection, she said. This is why the story is resonating with people. Americans are left struggling with a scenario that doesn't fit into any bucket. But as jarring as that may feel, there's a danger in trying to force the incident into a familiar framework, says Marsha Levick, chief legal officer and co-founder of the Juvenile Law Center. She believes Americans have become so stuck in a place of punishment that they have lost the ability to have conversations outside those boundaries. By labeling the shooting with a loaded word intentional, 
Newport News Police Chief Stu, Steve Drew is inviting people to view it as a criminal act, Levick asserts. This is ludicrous. It's absurd. It is utterly inconsistent with science and what we know about human development and child development, she says. Let's own that. This was not a criminal act. Levick would like law enforcement to acknowledge that this is not our lane, as it did more than two decades ago in one of the few cases from the recent past that bears some resemblance to the Virginia shooting. When a six-year-old boy shot and killed a classmate in Michigan in 2000, Genesee County prosecuting attorney Arthur Bush didn't go after the boy, but after those who provided access to the gun. In an interview last week, Bush said he's been surprised by the repeated use of intentional by Newport News police. It was like fingernails on a chalkboard when I heard the police say it was intentional, he said. We don't call it intentional when it's a six-year-old. He's not old enough to have intent. Bush, who later became a defense attorney and retired in 2018, remembers visiting the boy at a group home and squeezing into a child-sized chair to chat. The boy proudly showed him pictures he had colored and his favorite toys. A smile revealed two missing front teeth, and they talked about the tooth fairy and the Easter bunny. He was excited because he knew he was going to get candy, Bush said. It was quite, quite clear he was not hatching any diabolical plots. He was just a typical little kid. He was a baby, pretty much. Bush remembers being dumbfounded when notified of the 2000 shooting. I just couldn't wrap my head around that, he said but he knew immediately he wouldn't bring any charges. The only thing to do with that boy is get him out of that situation, find the best place for him, Bush said. Trial canceled. Chadois takes plea deal in case. Man accused of threatening calls to Nagusa's Boulder office. Written by Mitchell Byers. A Colorado man accused of making hundreds of calls to the Boulder office of U.S. Representative Joe Neguse and threatening the congressman and his staffers has taken a plea deal in his case. Travis David Chaudois, 47, pleaded guilty in Boulder District Court to retaliation against an elected, elected official, harassment and theft, according to court records. Prosecutors dismissed a charge of stalking as part of the agreement and the Boulder County District Attorney's Office said Chadois will be ordered to pay $9,514.52 in restitution. A trial date had been set for March, after Chadois initially pleaded not guilty in this case, but that trial date has been canceled following the plea. Chadois is instead set for sentencing on March 3rd. Our recommendation will be informed, in part, by the pre-sentence investigation report, which the court will have prepared before the next court date. Boulder County District Attorney's Office spokeswoman Shannon Carbone said, Chaudois remains out of custody on a $1,000 cash bond. According to an affidavit, the charges stem from calls Chaudois made to Nagusa's office in Boulder and his office in Washington, D.C. in May. Staffers at the Boulder office said they received hundreds of calls in just an hour, with Chaudois telling staff he was coming for them and would be in the parking lot. The staff at the Boulder office were sent home for the day due to the nature of the calls and safety concerns. Chaudois was taken into custody on June 17th, and detectives were informed that he had made additional calls, calls to Nagusa's office earlier that same day. According to the affidavit, Police have copies of voicemail messages left by Chaudois, in which he can be heard saying, I want you all dead. If I see any of you in the street, I'm dragging you down a dark alley, and you all need to burn in hell. Colorado employers. Late changes to schedules could result in fines. A bill to require advanced notice for workers to be introduced this session. Written by Seth Klaman. Abby Vesteca worked at a Safeway in Denver for 18 months, stocking shelves, covering the cosmetics and dairy departments, and filling morning and night shifts that sometimes came in rapid succession. The schedule for the coming week 
would regularly be posted on Friday mornings, two days before the new work week was set to begin. When Vesteka, who uses they-them pronouns, was recovering from back surgery, they regularly missed physical therapy and had to rush to other medical appointments because of their schedule. Eventually, Vesteka quit Safeway, which did not return a request for comment Wednesday. In March 2022, they went back to work at a marijuana dispensary, but the scheduling issues followed them from one service industry job to the next. It just became, we need you here, said Vesteka, who was connected with the Denver Post through supporters of a push to regulate scheduling. And it's never really been posed to me in a sense of, you have the right to decline this. It's always sort of been in my experience that this is what we need from you, or I don't know that we'll be able to have this job work out for you much longer. We need you to drop everything for the good of the business, and we don't really care how much it impacts your life. Some Colorado lawmakers are hoping to give more predictability to workers' lives and make the state one of only two that require large employers to provide advanced scheduling. A bill to create what supporters call a fair work week is still being drafted by legislatures, including Representative Emily Sirota, a Denver Democrat, and is yet to be introduced in the House. But its planned provisions would require some employers to post work schedules two weeks in advance, giving workers at least 12 hours between shifts and require predictability pay be given to workers whose hours are abruptly changed. Most of the bill would apply only to employers with 250 or more employees and who operate in the retail and food and beverage industries, Sirota said. That's a global count, she said. If a retailer has 20 employees in Colorado and 300 elsewhere in the country, they would still be covered. One planned provision to give employees the right to request changes to their schedule without fear of retaliation would apply to private sector employees more broadly. Employers be required to those requests, Sirota said, but they also couldn't punish employees for asking. There would also be exclusions to the predictability pay for some circumstances and flexibility for workers who want to work new regulated shifts. The bill would provide predictive scheduling for as many as 350,000 workers in Colorado, Sirota said. It would be enforced by the state's Department of Labor and Employment, and violation penalties could include payback and a $10,000 fine. What we have found in these sectors, and this is across the country, not just in Colorado, folks have a hard time. That scheduling unpredictability rampant in these sectors causes challenges around income volatility, Sirota said, and challenges in workers' ability to really live their lives and do things like establish childcare, to do things like visit the doctor, to really know how much income they can anticipate in coming weeks and months. And across the nation, Minnesota, George Floyd murder case, court asked to void verdict, written by Steve Karanowski, the Associated Press, St. Paul, Minnesota. An attorney for Derek Chauvin asked an appeals court Wednesday to throw out the former Minneapolis police officer's convictions in the murder of George Floyd, arguing that legal and procedural errors deprived him of a fair trial. Floyd died on May 25, 2020, after Chauvin, who was white, pinned the black man to the ground with his knee on his neck for nine and a half minutes. A bystander video captured Floyd's fading cries of I can't breathe. Floyd's death touched off protests around the world and forced a national reckoning with police brutality and racism. Chauvin's attorney, William Moorman, told a three-judge panel of the Minnesota Court of Appeals that the trial judge should have moved the case out of Minneapolis because of extensive pretrial publicity and unprecedented security precautions due to protest fears. The primary issue on this appeal is whether a criminal defendant can get a fair trial consistent with constitutional requirements in a courthouse surrounded by concrete block, barbed wire, two armored personnel carriers, and a squad of National Guard troops, all of which, or whom, are there for one purpose, in the event that the jury acquits the defendant, Mormon said. 
But Neil Katyal, a special attorney for the state, said Chauvin got one of the most transparent and thorough trials in our nation's history. Chauvin's many arguments before this court do not come close to justifying reversal. Hennepin County Judge Peter Cahill sentenced Chauvin to 22 and a half years after jurors found him guilty of second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter. Chauvin later pleaded guilty to a separate federal civil rights charge and was sentenced to 21 years in federal prison, which he is now serving in Arizona, concurrent with his state sentence. Judge Cahill managed this trial with enormous care, and even if Chauvin could identify some minor fault, any error is harmless, Cattell said. The evidence of Chauvin's guilt was captured on video for the world to see. Appeals Judge Peter Reyes said Wednesday that the court would rule within 90 days. Chauvin did not attend the oral arguments, but Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison, who assembled the prosecution team, sat in the front row. Even if Chauvin wins his appeal, his federal sentence will keep him in prison longer than his state sentence likely would, because he would qualify for parole earlier in the state system. Mike Brandt, a Minneapolis defense attorney who has been following the cases arising from Floyd's murder, said a victory at appeal would be functionally meaningless and that Chauvin's time in prison is pretty well locked in stone, given his federal sentence. Mormon often pursues conservative causes, including challenges to President Joe Biden's election victory and COVID-19 vaccine mandates. Mormon argued in his brief that the pre-trial publicity was more extensive than at any other trial in Minnesota history, and that the judge should have moved the trial and sequestered the jury. Polar Bear Attack Mother, One-Year-Old Son Killed in Alaska Written by Mark Thiessen and Patrick Whittle The Associated Press Anchorage, Alaska A polar bear chased several residents around a tiny, isolated Alaska native whaling village, killing a mother and her one-year-old son in an extremely rare attack before another community member shot and killed the bear, authorities said. The fatal mauling happened Tuesday near the school in Wales, an isolated Bering Strait coastal community located on the westernmost tip of the northern American mainland, about 50 miles, 80 kilometers from Russia. That is no stranger to coexisting with polar bears. Summer M- Myomic of St. Michael and her son Clyde Ongtowasrak were killed in the attack, Alaska state troopers said in a statement. Her parents declined interviews with the Associated Press when reached Wednesday at their home. It's very sad for St. Michael right now and Wales, said Virginia Washington, the St. Michael city administrator. She said Myomic split time between the two communities. She was a very sweet lady. She was very responsible, Washington said. Like many far-flung Alaskan villages, the predominantly Inupiaq community of roughly 150 people organizes patrols when the bears are expected in town from July through early November, which is before the sea ice forms and bears head out on the frozen landscape to hunt seals. That makes what happened this week almost unheard of, because polar bears are normally far out on the ice in the dead of winter and not close to villages, said Jeff York, the senior director of conservation at Polar Bear International, a conservation group. The last fatal polar bear encounter in Alaska was in 1990. I would have been walking around the community of Wales probably without any bear deterrence because it's historically the time of year that's safe, said York, who has decades of experience studying polar bears. You don't expect to run into bears because they'd be out on the sea, sea ice, hunting seals and doing their thing. Poor weather and a lack of runway lights at the Wales Gravel Airstrip prevented troopers and wildlife officials from making it to Wales on Tuesday after the polar bear attack. Attempts were being made again Wednesday. When asked to describe the mood in Wales on Wednesday, Don Hendrickson, the school principal, called it traumatic. Classes were canceled a day after the fatal attack. The students are with their families, Hendrickson said. Counselors were being made available to students.
and from the obituaries, Carolyn H. Smith, July 22, 1936, through January 6, 2023. Carolyn H. Smith, age 86, of Loveland, Colorado, passed away peacefully and entered into the full presence of the Lord on January 6, 2023. She was a devoted wife, homemaker, grandmother, and great-grandmother. She is survived by her husband of 63 years, Gordon K. Smith, sister, Winnell, Newton, two children, Stan Smith and Angela McKibben, five grandchildren, Tyler Smith, Haley Brown, Elisha Cooper, Laura Trujillo, and Holly McKibben, and four great-grandchildren, Levi, Ruby, Nolan, and Ava. She is preceded in death by her parents, Garland Reed Harris and Florence Janelle Harris. Carolyn was born on July 22, 1936, in Ryan, Oklahoma. Her family later moved to Belton, Missouri, where she met Gordon in eighth grade. Gordon and Carolyn graduated from Belton High School, and Carolyn went on to earn her teaching degree from Baker University. Following Gordon's graduation from the University of Missouri, they married on June 14, 1959. Carolyn taught second grade in Belton, and after their wedding, taught school in Pensacola, Florida, while Gordon was in Naval Air Basic Training. Gordon's service in the Navy took them to Norfolk, Virginia, where they welcomed their first child, Stan. After Gordon's military service, he began a career as a pilot, and they lived in Genesau, Illinois, where they welcomed their second child, Angela. Eventually, Gordon became a pilot for Western Airlines, followed by Delta Airlines, and they made their home in Colorado. They lived many years in Littleton, Longmont, and most recently, Loveland, Colorado. Carolyn's joy throughout her life was caring for her husband, children, and their home. She loved attending church, cooking for her family, gardening, working on puzzles, and filling their home with treasured antiques, both family heirlooms and ones found antiquing. Carolyn also devoted many hours to creating beautiful, counted, cross-stitch works of art. A memorial service honoring Carolyn's life will be held at First United Methodist Church at 420 North Nevada Avenue, Colorado Springs at 2 p.m. on January 21st. Carolyn will be laid to rest at Fort Logan National Cemetery in Denver, Colorado. In lieu of flowers, memorial contributions may be made to the Salvation Army. Thank you for joining us for the reading of the Boulder Daily Camera and the Longmont Times Call. My name is Nicola Fordwood. If you enjoyed this program, Please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.